G'day and welcome back to the Voice of a Veteran podcast. This is the episode number two with Dan Kieran. And this time we sit down and go through the release of his recent book, Courage Under Fire, which really talks about his life story from before defence and afterwards. And it's a great tale of one veteran's journey, that of a Victoria Cross winner himself. In this, we really dive into some key details, and particularly there's a lot of great stories in this episode that really jumped out to me as they had pathways and threads through my own military career, and it was really fun and enjoyable sitting down with Dan and discussing some of those similarities, those key differences, and some of those lives in complete parallel. So tune in and enjoy this episode. All right, g'day and welcome back to the Voice of the Veteran. I'm here again with Dashing Dan from Derapat. Um <laughs> Dan, mate, I'm here with your book, Courage Under Fire. Now, for those watching, listening, I don't read, and I read your book in about three days, and mate, it was absolutely fantastic as far as just <laughs> being real and authentic, uh, telling what is a great Australian story. Um, I was also extremely impressed by the amount of people you got to to give you comments caught in a few favors mate to get the comments yeah and then even reading your book and going back and looking at some of these comments are like oh what did they think when they read this book because <laughs> it is bloody honest right <laughs> it is and uh how's the feedback been from those who might potentially look at this as not being very um very ironed and starched <laughs> <laughs> look i uh no one said anything to me yet actually oh wow no I, i'm waiting i'm happy oh. for take native you know, comments doesn't oh. worry me in the slightest. Don't worry, mate. Uh, I got on the media and threw knives at the mall, and no one's ever contacted me yet. So uh, that's <laughs> you know, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. <laughs> but mate, what what I want to do is like I literally cannot encourage enough people to pick this up and have a read of it because you touch on everything from um, the reason why you joined service, and there's a lot in there on, in your personal life, and I don't mean to skip over that because that is so so personal. But I want to sort of go to a lot of the. Um, relatable variables that are in here particularly as far as like your life in service and particularly for as we are going through this stuff in the um the wider Australian public at the moment the opportunity now is to help educate the Australian public to what a life in service was and particularly for that sort of Afghan 2001 on generation of which you are right bang mint in the middle and one of our most outstanding exceptional soldiers so with your permission I would like to go through a few pages that I have crimped and highlighted i was about to say yeah you have dog eared a few pages I, some mate, highlighter on there, mate, i okay. literally felt like i was butchering this and <laughs> pe- disrespectful to it but um it was it was fantastic you know i literally had my popcorn out watching a reading as i did this but um so i love some parts in here where you talk about um the fir- one of the first times you were, or when you were in, in combat uh, in, in iraq and you, you had the, the crack thump going over your head and uh, you started getting the smile crossing from ear to ear on your face and it's something so foreign in a conversation that so many of my civvy mates and family and even, as you can imagine, trying to explain these things to people like, you know, what do you mean? Like you enjoyed being in, in contact, being in conflict. And it's it's being like tested for the first, finally putting your skills to the test. How is it for you? Look, I think it is absolutely the ultimate challenge, right? So someone has just tried to kill you. How are you going to react? What else is out there? That is that challenging, you know, which, you know, it's like a chess game. Essentially, well, I love it. Right? You said problem solving. Yeah. What's the ultimate problem to solve? Someone's trying to kill me. Yeah, How good? That's fantastic. That's actively trying to kill you. Yeah. Well, what am I going to do about it? And you're finally getting put, I like to, I refer to it as, um, imagine being trained up for a game of rugby and never getting to play. And then you finally get to play. Yeah, absolutely. It's the fir- first time to go, here we go. Here's, you know, six years under my belt of everything. You know, instructors have told me in training and doing all these things. Yeah. What am I going to do about it now that someone's actually trying to kill me? 
I love yep. that. I love that. And uh, you were, you were quite happy with your performance. You were quite happy with that feeling. But what what did that feel like in in con, in combat in contact? Mm. Um, you know, you've, you've gone through it many times now. Were there any times that you properly feared for your own life? Hey, that's a strange one. I wouldn't yeah. say. Pr- I mean, the feared for your life. I yeah. mean, there's always concerns. I think certainly in the, some of the operational environments we've been in in Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan, where. And the IED threat, the unknown. I'm sweet with someone shooting at me because, you know, I know roughly where it's coming from. There's something I can do about it. There's not much I can do about stepping on an IED. It's going to blow my legs off, right? So I don't have control. I think it comes a little bit down to that control aspect and there's some planning parts. Well, well, yeah, you can take different courses of route or whatever to avoid IEDs and there's some, you know, tactics and some some part of that. But it's always there. It's always constant. But then someone shoots at you, it's, it's a new sort of thing that you know that there's an engagement period. You know that this is the time to do something now. Uh, you know, it's, it's in your face and there's nothing you can do. You can't hide from it. You have to deal with it and you have to act. Absolutely. And your performance will be, well, am I going to lie? Am I going to be alive or dead at the end of this? It's a pretty tangible, immediate feedback loop, isn't it? Isn't you know, it? They're yeah. shooting at me. I'm shooting at them. Someone's going to come out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I stuffed up. I got shot in the face. You know, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, one gotcha. of those. Absolutely. I, I think. Well, there's no change. refresh button. No, there's no not. refresh button. No. Not at all. That's uh, so interesting you talk about that IED threat. I'm the same and I try and relate that to civilians. I, mean, I lost uh, Scott Smith 2012 in Helmand. Um, he took it to an IED and particularly as a, as a commander but as anyone over there, um, you know, I, I sort of say to people, you know, I, I can punch a bad guy in the face, I can shoot a bad guy but an IED isn't something that I can, um, you know, I can sort of uh, justify. You know, it's not, it's it's this threat that is unknown it's, and it's constantly out there and it's uh, it really is one of those things that can sort of, get to you um, not knowing where these things are and it's it's so very very different to that that physical and real threat look it is and i, I know personally it was one of those things and I, I said this once to a journo where i was back in australia years later and i know mind was wandering obviously and i was looking on the side of the road for disturbed earth because yeah. you've done it for so long where you're yep. looking for signs of is you know is that something is someone put an ied in there or a landmine or something but it is you know there's only so many things you can do to, to mitigate that risk um, but you do it every day and it becomes just part of your life, right, when you're in country, right? So it's Mate, you and the Bushmasters, I tell you what, I had this apparent nickname. Actually, what's your what's your best nickname? What's your favourite nickname? Just Dan. Dan. Just Dan? Yep. Just Dan, the dashing Dan? Just Dan. The winner of the Hill Sprints. Thank goodness. Yeah, I, like no, no. Um, I had this bit of a, during Afghan 2012, I got this bit of a reputation for being called Half on Hesto. I hated walking <laughs> and I hated Bushmasters. Only because by that time, this is 2012 in Afghanistan, every single time we stepped foot out of Tarankat, as you know, they knew we were coming. Yeah, of course. I mean, you were in charge of the Bushmasters <laughs> in Iraq and again in Afghanistan, and you sort of know. <laughs> See them watching you. Yeah. Oh, but I, my head's overthinking. I'm like, we get a broken down tyre, they're tracking me the whole time, there's IEDs waiting for us. And um, yeah, it was just incredible to think about all that, that enduring risk that's going on over there. Um, and exposing to that to yourself time and time again with these giant bloody bullet magnets, and you had to go out there and do that time and time again, mate. So I take my hat off to you. Jeez, yeah, I don't know. It did, yeah, it didn't. I don't know, it didn't. Didn't look at it like that. I think. Yeah. I think that's why I'm. I'm was very suited to that sort of career is because I didn't look at and didn't dwell on those those aspects of it. I can you know recognize it. What can I change and affect in this space? Well, I could be observant and you know be part of the team and doing that. Yeah, that is all I can do. Park it. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, that's Good. how I looked at it. Move on. Quite yeah. the realist here. You were afraid of the dark as a child. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was but then too, I went mate. underground, right? Mining underground. Weird. Yeah, but you went underground with explosives. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid of Bigfoot as a kid, uh, mate, and uh, in the dark, absolutely. 
Yeah, people talk about you talk about this like addicted to danger, and it's like, are you addicted to danger, or you're sort of addicted to that true mortal test of your own skill set? You're not the danger side of it, not yeah. at all. I think it's the I think it's the challenge aspect, the the how am I going to deal with this situation? I think it's the unknown yeah. is what I wouldn't I wouldn't say addicted to it, but I certainly yeah potentially. I mean, it's that that rush of adrenaline, you know, the highs, the lows, the peaks of that, and then then nothing. And yeah. I, I certainly, I certainly know for a fact during my service by the end of Afghanistan, my last deployment, yeah. my profile for risk was probably not great. Yeah. Whereby you know you'd, I'd have mates go, I can see what you're doing, Dan. As in, I was you know deliberately exposing myself whilst walking along a ridge line, so they knew that I was there for someone to have a crack at me, stuff like yeah. that. Right. I was my time. If I had to continue down that path and stayed serving yeah. and continue doing trips yeah there would have been a point at you know, my luck would have run out at some point I was think. that trying to provoke due to roe or just trying yeah, to provoke yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely no i'm with you mate <laughs> being there not not walking along ridge lines just yeah. landing helicopters as close as i could so oh. you know what i mean like yeah pushing that envelope a little bit too far i think where yeah. you're going well you know exposing yourselves unnecessarily yeah. for risk when you didn't really need to, it wasn't part of the mission to do that. So we felt very calculated head though. You knew that they weren't accurate first round shots, so you're good to go. I was hopeful, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love one part in here you talk about, and this is again for people to try and draw relevance here. And one of your deployments, you know, you you you're back out through Dubai. The next thing you're in Los Angeles on on Rodeo Drive. <laughs> so um, my last partner was actually from LA, and I came back from two separate deployments straight back to LA and Rodeo Drive. And as far as like one of the most separate and unique places to be. You know, sitting there going, right, what, where have I just been? 24 hours ago, I was with, you know, Julia Gillard overseas and now I'm sitting here and people have... <laughs> it was so bizarre. I remember having cocktails in the in the pool in Vegas. Yeah. And it was two, yeah, it was probably only two days before we would just dealt with an IED in Iraq that had killed a heap of civilians. Right, I literally drove past it and the vehicle's on fire. And then two days later, I'm, I'm sitting there having pina colada in the pool in Vegas. Mate, it was strange. And that's particularly for people, there's a lot of conversations around the moment in the media about, you know, multiple deployments and decompression periods and things like that. And um, I actually found one of the hardest things to sort of come to terms, not hardest to come, but one of the most surreal things to come to terms with was that just immediate transition back into civilian lifestyle. You know, I remember my mum getting upset with me 48 hours after one Afghan trip sitting on the back bench for not getting up and putting my dishes away. I'm like, my head still isn't even here. <laughs> <laughs> Holding you accountable, but I like it. Yeah. It just, yeah, but it's very easy to also come back with this sort of mindset of like, you know, these people like don't even know like what's going on over there. You know, this, this isn't the real world. That's not the real world. And then, you know, having to come to term with like, is deployment even the real world? It's like the real world for you while you're there, but then you have to get back and adjust to other people's real world. And a lot of people lose themselves in that and yeah. start to get this entitled and expectation. Like you people need to educate yourself. And it's like, I actually like going back to what you're saying. I volunteered for service so that these people don't have to do that. So don't feel entitled that they should be thinking about you. I don't know. Have you tell me how you worked through that yourself? Uh, yeah, look, I mean I, that is absolutely my mentality where I, yeah, so I chose to sign up. I don't expect recognition from anyone in the Australian public. I, I think it's great that we have started to change certainly since Vietnam, goodness, it's you know, yeah. so much has been done since there since then. Yep. Um, for veterans and the recognition because it is tough what we do. Yeah. You know, it is hard and, and I think we are fortunate where we are able to shape and change the landscape where we have the freedoms that we have here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's probably we are such a lucky. I mean, if twenty twenty yeah. has taught us anything, we have our land girt by sea is key, if not decisive terrain in the so, strategic environment, isn't it? But uh, yeah, but look, I, I chose yeah. to go and you chose to go and go away, and and we've been fortunate. It's, it hasn't been on our shores, right, to go yeah. and deal with things before it gets here. And I, I firmly believe that we dealing with some of these problems around the world. When I say problems, talking about terrorists and, and other things, yeah. dealing with them in their backyard rather than ours. Yeah, and that's that's how I still look at it. No good. And I want to jump on something you said in our last podcast talking about um, people who come up to you and say, you know, I haven't gone anywhere, you know, particularly at the moment, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, DVA and defence has what a veteran is defined, you know, serving a day, you're a veteran. And so many people in the veteran community putting themselves down, it's like, you know, I didn't go anywhere, I didn't deploy and mm. signing up for that uncertainty and, and needing for people to actually just sort of connect and recognise, you know, signing up to service, you, you've done your part and it's important for you to feel included within our community and for other veterans to help and make them feel included in our community too. Um, so, next part in here, what are we talking about? Now, mate, um, the, the loss of crash, I'm not going to take you back into this, but it's just so important for people to understand. Again, like I told you, I lost Scotty over there in 2012 um, and we were... We were then on the ground for another three days and then you guys were still there in the AO and particularly pulling back, bombing up, um, recovering yourself personally after that immense exertion. And then a lot of people don't really understand the emotions then that go through like in here when you, you've heard um, that, that crash didn't make it. Um, and a lot of people think, you know, oh, did you want to get back out there? Was it about revenge? And it, it's actually not. It's kind of more so about wanting to, you know, Finish what you started. Serve them proud. I think that's the best way of putting it. It's finish what we started, right? And yep. and you're right. That's probably that that day in particular uh, when when we we lost Crash in 2010 when he was he was shot and killed on the battlefield. Yep. Yeah, that was a really tough day. Not just for what had happened that day, but it was the I remember the walk back from that battlefield because we we knew that he'd, he'd been killed. I've seen enough unfortunate um, incidents over the years to know deep down that we probably weren't going to see him again but yep. there was that hope that we could get him back to to further care and who knows something could have happened but there was a sinking feeling as as we started withdrawing from that that fight that that was not going to be the case but it was i was so physically fatigued and emotionally drained but then getting back i think about it, you know vomited all these other things that had happened yeah. because i pushed myself so hard but it was knowing that we would have to go potentially do it again the next day yeah and then being in a position of, you know, yeah, yeah I was a, a corporal at that point in time, but getting everyone else motivated and then trying to inspire those around you once you've been through an incident like that to get back on task and back, get back on the, on the job. And how you did know, you do that? That's tough, right? I think yep. for us it was, you know, we had a debrief, we brought everyone in. We, you know, we, we had that period of time to, to mourn and to – to get over it, I think a sergeant at the time said, "Look, you know, this is it. This is our time. We need to to deal with whatever's going on right now, because we can't be dealing with it when we step outside the wire. Yeah, so absolutely, grip it up now, deal with it. But that's what you have to do. Is that the best approach? Probably not. Not for everyone, because yeah. everyone's different, right? Everyone yeah. deals with things differently. Trauma, events like that. Yeah, but but for us, you know, we had a really a bloody exceptional team. In fact, very highly motivated uh, individuals, very professional." But mate, it was really hard, yeah. really hard to try and motivate and inspire people to, to get back on on task. Certainly at that point in time where we felt as if the government wasn't supporting us yep. with what the task was. And, and for us, when I say the task, the task was to clear the Taliban out of, of where they were at that point in time. But you know, we weren't getting the resources as, as what we probably needed to, to get that task 
done. Yep. And then when we did, you know, the handbrake sort of kept on getting pulled on when we started taking casualties. Yeah. You know, we accepted those risks. We all accepted those risks by going over. We knew what ultimately what would happen if, you know, if we didn't do our jobs well or, or just through chance, right? Yeah. We knew that. So it was very disappointing to, to, to not be able to do the job to the standard that we could have done it. I yeah. think it's probably the, the biggest letdown from, from that point in time in my life is going, well, we could have done this and could have done it bloody well. Yeah. You, you gave us the skills to be able to do this, but then you didn't let us do it. Now that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to work through. I mean, just for quick parallels, when um, I lost Scott, it was on day one of a three-day clearance of the Kajaki fan um, in Afghan. And, you know, again, we lost him to an IED, so it was even more frustrating. You, you couldn't, you know, we are under fire for the next three hours, literally collecting Scott and taking him back. And then I sort of brought the platoon and we just did a good old-fashioned orders group around the map. We just did a good old orders group to refocus and, and realign ourselves. But um, we were able to then crack on the next two days and, and get the job done and achieve the mission. And, you know, a lot of what we did then was in Scott's honour and it really made us if ever we ever needed purpose outside of ourselves, it was, you know, exalterated ever further. But for, for you guys to, to, to have to sort of hold back on that, I really want to understand how that impacted you personally and professionally. Look, at did because it, well, on one hand it's a focal point to go, you know what, we need to do everything to the, the highest possible standard because of this reason. Yep. You know, it is a focal point in that regard. But on the other hand, it was, it was a disappointment when we weren't allowed to, be, to do that. Right? It was very conflicting. Yep. Um, Felt very conflicted at that point in time. Uh, you know, didn't even know how I should should feel at that point in time. I do remember sitting there after one of the patrols going, well, what are we supposed to do next? Like you talk about that purpose and the mission. Well, I thought it was defined. Then all of a sudden it's not defined. So, what are, you know, what are we doing? And then you start having those questions. Well, what are we, you know, what are we doing here? And that's the worst mindset to get in when you're in a place like Afghanistan and, in the, you know, in the shit. You, you yeah. don't want to be having those thoughts at that point in time. Doubts in your strategic yeah, purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, but a step back from that, again, it's, again, having that time and, and realising, you know, this is, again, is a, probably not a path we need to go down and stepping back and go, well, you know, let's work within the confines of what I have. Yeah. And it's not about me, it's about the team and everyone else as well and, and getting on with the job and looking after everyone at the same time. Solve the problems you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's solve the problems you can. And, gotcha. and unfortunately, some of those problems, although so frustrating, were outside of our scope and ability to affect. Yeah. I tell you what, there's some lessons learned in there, isn't there? As far as even in then your potential ability to empower others to as a bare minimum, if you're assigning them the task to fully understand what the strategy or purpose behind that task is and enabling them to operate within that and then allow them the flexibility to do so. Because appreciating it's, where... It's it, allowing the flexibility part that's the key to that. <laughs> well, absolutely. And understanding how you can actually have the huge negative impact on people oh, if you don't yeah. follow through with that. Absolutely. Um, and then interesting, mate, regardless of being able to go back out there and do what you wanted to do, you still continue to serve, continue to carry on the task over there and go on to many other um, achievements yourself. Um the, the 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 part that crash plays in your life today as far as um inspiration and accountability for yourself personally given that he no longer has the ability to do that um for me scotty is a constant part where i think i'm in my darkest days and i have a responsibility because he's no longer here to um do what i can i'm sure it's probably similar for you and crash a good way of looking at it yeah it is yeah. Mate. it is a, all of a sudden a whole you know when you you're doing something and if you take a shortcut it's a bit of a, a reminder and a bit of a slap in the face sometimes i you know Physically to me to go, well, not physically, but metaphorically, where you go, well, this is probably not the approach or this is what I shouldn't be doing because of those reasons, exactly what you just said. So it is, it does hold you a bit more accountable, I think, sometimes as well. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, then coming out, of, 
going going from that you know incredible climax uh, that was Derapat, and then seeing that strategic handbrake, and then you right in here you have um, all the the battlefield spectators come out. I'm sure that would have been absolutely fantastic. But um, you sort of empathise with people that they would like to feel some form of connection to it. At the same time, you're probably in a lens where you're just like, excuse me. <laughs> uh, I love the way you articulate in here and I don't want to give away too much of that. But what I want to jump into is actually then you talk about um, the rapid transition out of that uh, and your inability to essentially to connect with that community, connect with that culture that we could have potentially helped you decompress further from it. I'm really interested to understand how you sort of wound yourself down from um, that critical incident, that critical time. Um, through to your transition out of country and into your next step. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it was a again, it was a challenging time whereby, as as you said, then the handbrake was pulled on. We had a mission to do, but then we weren't given the the I suppose the resources to do it. Uh, for us, I think we I think we came together closer than ever we we have before with our relationships, and and I think just knowing, really getting to know each other by people's frustrations, and then how having you know talking through them and dealing with that. So. For us, I think it was managing expectations, um, and also again, it comes back to that controlling what we could control. You know, I remember leaving country, and an ID had gone off the day that I was I was on a chopper to get out of there, and as it's gone off, it's you know, killed a heap of women and kids, mm-hmm. and, and you know that that right there was like a slap in the face, going everything that felt like everything we'd just done the last three months in this area. You know, what change have we actually affected? You know, what have we done? For this to still be happening, we haven't provided security to these people. We haven't helped them. Yeah. Like, how have we helped them? We probably we probably caused more problems yeah. than we've solved for them. So, I mean, I had a lot of questions unanswered. Certainly, when I left Afghan for the last time, um, and, and sort of, it was a bit of a downer. You know, we we lost throughout that whole deployment, not just in, in MTF one, but there was ten soldiers of special yeah. forces as well in that that eight months, nine months period yeah. that we lost. And then for that to happen on the day that I'm leaving, going, well, what what did I sort of achieve here? Yeah, no, I'm with you. Mate, it was um, backtracking one step during my trip 2012. We lost uh, Mervyn Nate. Um, and then 48 hours later, uh, the three RA guys lost three of their guys to Hekmatula. Mm. And I watched that strategic handbrake get applied. And what happened was the call came down that no regular forces were allowed outside the wire. And then next thing, um, my platoon, because the other platoon was still dealing with um, Mervyn Nate's loss, I was actually cut over to um, the SSR. Um, squadron and together we worked for the next three weeks to track down Heckman Tool. I remember the poor three hour guys and I knew the OPSO and the CO and their inability to get out there to catch this guy. Like we knew who this guy was. Their inability to get out there and prosecute that target. That they, they jaded an entire generation of, of infantry guys. And what's worse, mate, is they made me spend three weeks in a Bushmaster. <laughs> um, they made me spend three weeks in a Bushmaster. But it was just in so incredible to look back and just see the actual damage you do, why you may think you was you saving lives by preventing physical risk, the mental and emotional risk you actually and and trauma and injury you actually inflict uh, in not trusting your people to do what they're trained to do, is a is a is a consideration that's always rested with me. Be that out of the military now or for those I speak to back in the military, it's like if you're going to ask people to do something, you know, be ready to allow them to do it. Because the worst thing you can do is pull them back at the time whereby you're going to cause more damage than good. Yeah, absolutely believe uh, that the case. You know, it is for me. You know, I've seen it. You've seen it as well. Yeah. And, and I would say that yeah, the damage done by that um, from a professional point of view and the development of the future generation of of soldiers certainly seeing that action. Yeah, it certainly does jade people and certainly raises a lot of questions. 
as to what you know their purpose. Yeah. By doing that, so yeah. Look, anyway, undermining, undermining your undermining. purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I do then love, mate, is then <laughs> reading your uh, classic transition back into the regular army, whereby I don't care how many operations you've gone on, um, corporal. Uh, you need to go and become a substandard corporal. You need to walk 20Ks. You need to go back to these old school tactics. Um, one of the biggest things that I really did, and I will say this, hate within defence and also within outside of defence is this is the way it's already been done. And this uh, resistance to innovation, yeah. resistance to modernisation. And on the last podcast, we talked a lot about, you know, holding those cards and holding on to things. And there's something to say, be said about maintaining a standard. But for me, the actual issue is not the standard. It's the mindset that is resistant to upgrading and improving that standard and making it more um, relevant. Talk to me about that and how that the impacts on you coming back from doing your job for real to then being pushed into this round hole square peg situation. <laughs> oh, mate, yeah, the fun times, fun and games at that point in time in my life. Look, it, it wasn't even even to this day where I'm now in defence industry seeing look, they're getting there. When I say they're getting there, the cogs are turning and things yeah. are changing, right? But it's, it's never fast enough to what it, it needs to be. And look, you know, if you move too fast, there's problems and challenges that come from that as well. But yeah, look, absolutely at that point in time in my career where I was forced to to adhere to these standards that I'd, you know, I'd been doing it for, for 10 years and I needed surgery on my legs, actually. So there's a reason behind why I couldn't do it um, mm. because I'd pushed myself too hard in an Afghan. And, and Shin splints? Uh, compartment syndrome. So they ended yeah, gotcha. up yeah, yeah. opening me up when I got back. But um. Again, it's doing the right thing by by the defence force where I um, was uh, chose to do the course uh, at uh, whilst I was in pain. Go well, that's what they need me to do, rather yeah. than get myself sorted and and then go and do the course because that's what they needed from at that point in time. Again, it was that giving giving back or giving too much. Is that potentially devaluing the individual by not just making you feel individually cared for, individually considered potentially? Yeah, but look, potentially. But um, getting back on track again, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, it was a, a very challenging time i think it was the final i think realization for me where i was just a, a number on the page at that point in time yeah, gotcha. and i'd lost my certainly lost, lost my drive because i still wanted to go to special forces but unfortunately i couldn't you know the reality of that happening was, was uh, you know i think I've, I've spoken about that with my, my injuries and stuff it just wasn't going to happen so for me it was like well this is just another confirmation where I think it's time that I need to change. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, mate. You went on a special operations task group uh, deployment before me, 2010. I think I had a hat made up uh, that said taxi on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> mate, you boys worked hard, I remember. So again, I took over um, 2010. I took over November platoon um, at the end of that year, which was the platoon that had the three guys uh, that were killed that year uh, during the Black Hawk crash. Um, so I uh, was instantly flooded by reports on how tough the Bushmaster guys had it, backing up from between working with FE Alpha, FE Bravo. And in here you talk about just that, that physical um, toll that took on you. You know, vehicle ops is not easy. <laughs> well, yeah, the attack dog, you know, marking his territory, trying to sleep during the day in the shade, you I know. Love couldn't that. sleep under there, the bastard. I love that. Um, but no, it was, mate. It looked, I think I lost, you know, 15, 20 kilos easily. Yeah. <laughs> mate, I love yeah. it. My, my first trip to Afghanistan was actually in 2011 where I took our Prime Minister Gillard over. I was her personal security officer when she did her first trip to Tarrant So I actually love reading in this book when you talk about later um, at your medal investor ceremony where you're actually quite impressed talking to her yeah. and hearing of how uh, informed she was on the ground. Now this is where I, I love where our little lines cross. I was, as they made, first time as a, as a captain as her personal security officer, usually it's a, a, a soldier, but there was a security clearance piece to go into the meetings with her. 
So I sat there with her, mate, as she was there talking to the four-star general in charge of Afghanistan and telling him what we needed from different layers of ISR through to support and CASIFAC mechanisms in order to maintain the Australian contingents um, deployment and support to the coalition effort. And then got to spend many, many hours with her in the back of cars and the private conversations. And she was so open and engaging and asking so much information. So I got tickled pink reading that because she went over there uh, and really impressed me with her thirst for knowledge to understand what was actually going on at all levels and her ability to then feedback and provide that perception to you who's definitely had his fair share of actual experience so absolutely and she, i think yeah she got a you know didn't come across well in the media and after meeting her like i absolutely changed my perception of her yeah yeah she didn't the yeah, same absolutely when i got to sit there in the back of the car and talk to her and she spoke to the um soldiers was it at poppies yes and yeah. there was no prepared statements it was just her talking i was like man like that's leadership like we need to see more of it and she said, Heston, you don't understand the party politics. And I was like, no, nor did I want to. But anyway, um, it was good to go. Uh, what else? Now, you said you got the, bloody, the compartment syndrome and you got a bloody staph infection as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mate, I, got my, I snapped my Basilton in 2014 and I went back in a week later. Staph infection spent four weeks there in hospital. Like, what did that do to you? Did you? Uh, well, mate, I went to Fiji because my mate Marcus got married, right? So uh, I, it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> it was rough, mate. In the pool, I remember it. Yeah, anyway, it was, look, I got oh. through it. <laughs> you survived, you survived. Um, I don't, I'm trying not to give away all the juicy parts, but, mate, but I just want to give more people, give people more reasons to read it. You speak a lot about here and here about um, your role since uh, receiving the Victoria Cross and you go into such amazing detail talking about your decision to receive the Victoria Cross, yeah. being rekindled with your mates and some of that being the first time and I love that story and I'm going to, you have to get the book to read it to hear that one. <laughs> Um, but then talking about the opportunities that opened up for you, and one of them in particular here was working with War Memorial. Now, mm. I went to the War Memorial 2003, the first year I went to ADFA. You were basically made to go to the War Memorial. Mm. And I didn't go back until just last year. And I just went back there um, on a whim with a friend who was his first time. And I found it so therapeutic. I found it so cathartic. I found it so um, humbling mm. to actually go back there at the very start of my career, then at the very end with the perspective of like yourself, you know, having served, sacrificed and lost friends and just really understand as a veteran going through what veterans go through, how beneficial it can be to go back there. And I'm pretty sure that you would share the recommendation for any guy and girl who served to get back there regularly and to spend some time there. Look, if the opportunity is presented to you, look, absolutely. It changed for me as well. Like you, I went there and I was 17, part of my... I think that's still what it is part of the program. And then going back to years later and the significance of those names in the wall, it changes, the meaning changes. It's a place, for me personally, a place of, of healing. I've seen so many veterans be there for the first time, whether they go up to the cloisters and, and look at the role of honour or if they're in some of the more contemporary operations and, and seeing uh, what is displayed there and then being able to then share what they were doing personally with their family that's there with them the effect the positive effect that it has so mm. it is a place of healing absolutely yeah, absolutely and especially i mean there's a lot going on in our veteran community at the moment and um you know the the, the more material mate people can pick up and read something like this and feel relatable and, you know you touch on everything from pre-service during service highest performance of service and then even like your own personal struggles during service after service you know being thrust into the it's spotlight. A, it's a mixed bag, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And 
so much at the moment I see in the veteran community is people's that loss of purpose, loss of identity and all this uncertainty. And, you know, thank you so much for putting this together. And um, there's just so many good reads in there, I mean, that are so relevant to here and to today. And it's a story that cool. is told. I mean, when, when did you get out, sorry? 2000 and... Technically, I'm, I'm back in. I'm still a uh, still reserve. Yeah, but uh, sorry, sorry, full time. Full time. End of 2011. End yeah. of 2011. But you oh, know, yes, this nice. has relevance like straight away as soon as I picked it up. And um, you're ongoing with your current service, and like I love it. At the end, there's still plenty to be written here. Um, <laughs> there is, mate. Who knows what I, what I could come up with next? But, writing um, this book. What was your favourite part about writing this book? I think that again, we, we keep on talking about purpose, but for me. The whole reason for doing it was, I mean, if you, if you do read it, it's my upbringing and where I've been and what I've done and what I've accomplished. It's to let people know that you can change your stars, essentially. It's just because you've grown up a certain way or from a certain sort of socioeconomic group doesn't mean you have to stay there. Yeah. That was that was a, the real reason that I, that I started this project. You can take control. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And one key part reading about it, I mean, it's it's your story as, as a kid is so authentic. You saw in your career is very authentic and then you start to see this potential inauthenticity creep in injected by others when we start talking about and this it's a great tale in here talking about um, what was what was created, what was supported, what was instigated to help support as we spoke in the last podcast about what the potential perception of a Victoria Cross recipient was. And then I feel as the reader and now talking to you that this book has potentially been a huge part of you feeling reconnected with your true authenticity. It's actually all out there for others to know, to hold you accountable to. Yeah, yeah. But to get the, the full picture, was there, was there a level of feeling completed in publishing this or is that just my outside no, perceptions? No, not at all. Look, there was. And I think I've, I've, I've gone about it where I've, I wouldn't say I lost my way. And there's no, that didn't happen at all. But there was a feeling where I could have. Yep. And that I hoped that that would come through the stories as well. Um, so that was that was part of the, you know, that was a, a conscious part of me trying to put that in there where it painted that picture where, you know, just because of all these things have happened in your life and that, as a vet from point of, point of view of a veteran, that you can get back on track as well. And I think that's a part of that further education piece for me and personal development piece for me was was me getting back on track and, and realigning. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Kieran, VC Courage Under Fire. Um, as you just said in that last sentence, if you would like to, as a, as a veteran, have a read of a truly exceptional but extremely, extremely relatable story, apart from winning a Victoria Cross, uh, relatable story that goes through everything from service, promotion courses, administration getting lost <laughs> through to pomp and ceremony and be able to sit there and like I did myself, uh, try and draw traces of your own career in there to help make you feel more relatable as the person reading this or just someone who wants to know more about what a life of a veteran in service is or someone who has a life story that can then look at the highs and lows of this, have a read of it. Um, and it's just so empowering reading others and being made to feel so much more relevant by reading other people's stories and actually feeling and understanding that like you're not alone in a lot of these things, mate. So really, really appreciate it. Absolutely appreciate it. Chatting with you as well. It's been great. No, Thank absolutely. You. Thanks, Dan. Cheers, mate. Thank See you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of a Veteran podcast. We really hope that there were some key takeaways that might help you be they relatable, be they aspirational, but we're not just here for your entertainment, so please make sure you remember, move on and action from here. And that's it, guys. If you've heard something here today that has truly helped you, it's our duty to share that information with as many as we can. Support is about being proactive, and that's taking action to better our own lives as well as the lives of as many mates as we can. 
We love your support getting these messages out. So please subscribe. Go to our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Voice of a Veteran. Catch you next time. See ya.